Hi and welcome to The Rock. The Apostle Paul left his young protege, Titus, on the island of Crete to finish the work of establishing biblically qualified pastors in every town. He writes Titus with instructions on how to do this and how to build a healthy church that can impact the world for the gospel. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of Titus entitled, Finish the Work. Good morning. We are ready to dive back in to the book of Titus, chapter 2, picking up where we left off. We finished an entire chapter. If you're new here, that's what we do, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, no cutting and pasting. We just pick a book and we go through it line by line, precept upon precept. And so we look forward to some really good ethical exhortations. In other words, God telling us how we ought to live to please the Lord. And so let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Father God, just some challenging exhortations and instructions for people who profess to know you waiting for us this morning and how we should live to impact the lost world around us, Lord. And that's exactly what we want to do. We want to Represent you well, Lord. We say we know you, that you live inside of us. And so we need to reflect your character as you truly are. And so Titus chapter 2 is going to help us do that, Lord. We ask your blessing now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, the island of Crete, which is, of course, where uh, this um, letter to Titus really is taking place. It may be beautiful, but what was going on there definitely was not. It's a beautiful place for sure, the island of Crete, but what was happening there regarding Christianity was a full-on disaster. And let me tell you why. The islanders were isolated, you know, uh, kind of developed a notorious uh, reputation for being immoral and corrupt, and that... Moral corruption infiltrated the Christian community there. And sadly, really, as Titus states, uh, it was really the leaders who weren't even Christians themselves. They had drifted away from what's called sound doctrine, which is just orthodox Christian truth, drifted away and kind of shipwrecked their own faith. And in doing so, were <laughs> shipwrecking uh, the faith of others. And so they were teaching fables and nonsense and living like the devil while they were doing that. They were deceiving people. They were slandering the apostle Paul and opposing the gospel and the word of God and living in every kind of imaginable immorality. And so that is definitely not what God had in mind when he gave the church, capital C, uh, God's people, as he gave them pastors. Uh, we'll definitely see that. And we have seen it here in chapter one. That's what he's saying. Paul's been clearly telling Titus, listen, here's the point. 
um, the opening words of his letter to give you some context before we dive into chapter two. Chapter one was all about a letter to this precious, capable, uh, godly young pastor protege that Pastor Paul, as I like to call him, left there on Crete to really kind of uh, finish the work of shutting down the wrong guys, the false teachers, and raising up and appointing biblically qualified men to pastor, quote, in every town on Crete. So Titus, the mission statement there is healthy pastors, solid teaching to build healthy, solid congregations to make a difference in the community, to seek and save the lost, uh, to make the gospel attractive to outsiders. So... That said, chapter one was a detailed description of what I call the heroes and the zeros, okay? The heroes, he's, he said in chapter one, here's what we're looking for in a man of God who would call, be called to pastor. Theologically, he would be sound and holds fast to the truth, even though there's a lot of pressure to compromise that truth. And regarding character and conduct, he lived above reproach. And we've got great detail on that chapter one. The last half of chapter one was about the zeros, not the heroes. Sadly, he's saying, here's what's masquerading itself out there as a Christian pastor, so-called. Theologically, they're just whack jobs. They're just ridiculous. They haven't a clue what they're talking about, he said regarding their character and their conduct, morally reprehensible, detestable, disobedient, and he says, unfit for anything good. So he says, now there's a shift going into chapter two. And he says, let's get back to you, the hero, all right? The heroic work of standing with the Lord in the midst of crooked and perverse generation, holding out the word of life in which we shine like stars in the universe so that others may see and come to know the Lord and be saved. He says, now let's get back to you. Here's how you should be teaching God's people to live. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, you, on the other hand, must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Now, here's who you're going to teach and what you need to be teaching them. So verse 2, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign or be offended or take offense or scoff at or mock the word of God. Verse six says, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Interesting. 
us. Verse 9, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way, and here it is, kind of the overarching theme of Titus, that they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive by how you think and how you speak and how you live and how you work. That's the idea that Christians, by how they live, not just what they say, to teach what God is all about. And so that before you is our text, our passage for this morning's consideration. We're going to take a look at it. It's fairly easy here, straightforward. Easy to understand, not so easy to put into practice as we'll see. And so there are ethical standards for God's people. We kind of call this the code of Christian conduct. And you find that these familiar words in several different places in the Bible. It's just the first exhortation to the young man Titus that you see here is to teach what is fitting that goes with sound teaching. So I noticed right away, sound teaching will always lead to sound living. In other words, right thinking produces right behavior. You always see the connection there. And so right away we see that this is important of what we believe because what we believe determines how we live. And so those standards for right living unfolds after the charge in verse 1. So the whole rest of the passage is the conduct that the ethical and moral exhortations that if you call yourself a Christian, this is how you should be behaving. Not perfectly, but that's the reach, the bent of our lives. We should be able to check the box and say, this is what I'm about. Even though daily I kind of take two steps forward, three steps back, but that's where I'm headed. That's what I embrace. That's who I want to be, and that's who I'm becoming. Right, And so verses 2 through 10 really is all about moral living and so with the details. And so it's kind of easy peasy, walk through this, the charge, verse 1, and then the conduct. We'll go verse by verse. First he talks to the older men and the women. Then he calls out the younger women and the younger men. And then there's a word for the pastor himself, who's a young man, who's supposed to encourage the young men. He says, and by the way, this includes you, sir, because pastors don't get an exempt card, you know. And then 9 and 10, he closes up with those who came to faith or found themselves uh, serving a master there in uh, the Roman Empire, where 40% of the population were indentured servants. And of course, we're going to talk about that. But let's look first now at the charge, okay? And so here we go. Verse 1 isolated for us. You, however, and in the Greek, it's called the, the emphatic. And it implies a big however. So in contrast to the last paragraph that precedes this one, it's all about the posers, the, the imposters, their deplorable life, and their terrible errors theologically. And then he says, but you, however, are way different. And now he's going to say, you, as opposed to their false doctrine, you are going to be all about sound doctrine. And so uh, 
let me give you another example of the charge to the pastor to preach theological truth and to guard the truth. And, and here it is in, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, now he's charging Timothy, who is Titus' friend. And they're both in their 30s, and they both know each other, and that's the charge for them as young pastors. I charge you in the presence of God who will judge the living and the dead in view of the second coming and the kingdom he's bringing. I give you this charge. I'm putting you under oath in front of God, the angels, and the whole wide world. Preach the word of God. Be prepared in season, out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound teaching. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around themselves a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. So you could go back to verse 1. Thank you. So the sheeple out there, (laughs) right, they are going to get tired of the truth. They're going to want to hear things that they want to hear. But the Bible says, not you, sir. You're not going to tell them what they want to hear. You're going to tell them what they need to hear. And not you, mature Christian. You're not going to tell people about Christianity in terms that are false, that are more palatable to a postmodern generation where you cut and paste and just tell them the things that don't offend people so that you'll be more better received and more popular, more convenient for you as well. He says, but oh, not you you got to tell the, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you, God. So that's the spirit of what he's saying. Sound means healthy and safe and whole. Doctrine comes from the Latin word doctor. It's spelled the same way. And doctrina means teaching. But doctor, the PhD kind of doctor. So it just is a word for teaching or the tenets of the faith or the, 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 the essential truths that make the gospel something and the essential truths that distinguish it from something it's not. That's to be guarded. That's the charge. Hold fast, he says, because the truth is what's going to save you and your hearers. Do not mess with the truth, even though there'll be a lot of pressure to do that. So healthy, safe, and sound. So it's kind of like safe and sound teaching is a must because it will result in safe and sound souls. And that's what he's supposed to do. Okay, so there's the charge. That was easy. Let's begin with the older gentlemen in the crowd. Verse 2, isolated here. Teach the older guys To be sober-minded, that word means worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, love and endurance. A a, uh, a familiar uh, trilogy there, faith, love and endurance. So the conduct of Christ followers, and we start naturally with what one commentator called the gray beards. All right, the gray beards, guys who have gray in their beard. Now... Of course he starts with the older guys. Why? Because they are the natural leaders or should be. They're the guys who want to, by nature, how God designed men to protect, to watch over, to be our brother's keepers and our sister's keepers. 
to defend the gospel and the truth and to watch over people. Now, God says something about gray-haired people that's really wonderful in the Proverbs. He says, gray hair for God's people is a crown of splendor. It's gained by a godly life or should be. So all things being equal, if you're talking about a Christian, as they age and walk with the Lord and fight the good fight through the valleys and the mountaintops and all of that, they remain faithful. That when you see gray hair on a believer who loves the Lord, it's a crown of splendor saying, this person has been faithful through the battle, through the storms, through spiritual adversity, all kinds of storms. But there they are. And you see the gray hair and you say, that is a life. All things being equal, from God's point of view, if it's a Christian, that is a crown of honor. Now, the value of their example, these gray beards, if you want to call them that, uh, will depend on their moral character. And there are certain liabilities about getting older. And, and just like there's liabilities for youthfulness, there's liabilities for those who are aging. And uh, for example, uh, I mean, people get tired. They get weary of the walk. They just get tired and tend to want to just not finish well. That's why he has to say these things. Older people can get irritable easily. They can be grouchy or short. And I don't mean 5'8 or 5'7. <laughs> so he's going to say four qualities we insist on in men who are older. Older, 50, 55, 60, we're starting to get there. Number one, temperate. As I said, it means quite literally sober, but it has a wider sense of being in control of himself under all circumstances. And number two, he says, worthy of respect. So not only does he say a Christian who has walked through life faithfully earns this crown of honor in the law, in Leviticus 19, it says, stand up in the presence of the aged Show respect for the elderly with those with gray hair and revere your God by doing so. So he's saying, earn that kind of honor, evidence it, warrant it, walk worthy of what God is uh, designating your life. Nobody wants to stand in the presence of somebody who at 60 years old is still craning his neck when a pretty young girl walks by and acting more like an adolescent than somebody who's mature or somebody who cusses at 60 and 65 and 70. You're bitter and acting mature and you're insecure Nobody wants to rise through that. He's saying, walk worthy of a dignified man of God. That's what he's saying. Worthy of respect. Because a guy who's profane in the older years, a dirty old man, as we like to call them, that is not a crown of honor. That gray hair is a crown of dishonor. And he says, men who love God, as you age, be dignified. Walk worthy. 
So he goes on to say, and be self-controlled. That just means possessing self-mastery in thought, judgment, and actions. It is not your hormones that prompt you. It's not peer pressure. It's not the world. It's not what if. I don't have enough money for retirement and and being pressured to do things you ought not to do because you're self-controlled. You walk the straight and narrow path. He goes on to say, sound in three things, sound in faith, love, and endurance. He says, of course, older men, you've got to have a healthy, vibrant relationship with the Lord. Check. Then he says, genuine love, not vindictive, not growing old and, and, and grouchy and bitter and short, but what is love? And he says, listen, hello, 1 Corinthians 13. If you got all the faith, you got the most faith anybody's ever had in the world. If you're so eloquent that even the angels are jealous about how wonderful it is when you open your mouth, and you're so sacrificial that you offer your own body as a sacrifice without love, you are a zero. So of course he's saying, guys, as you age, there's a tendency to be short and grumpy and intolerant. Stop it. You have to be loving, healthy relationship with God, faith, love, genuine love, not bitterness. And then he says, steadfast persistence through trials and tribulation. And that's the growing weary in good deeds. He says, listen, you've been doing good deeds, dying to yourself, denying yourself, picking up your cross and following. You need to follow all the way through. And my friends... It's a temptation for older people to just sort of get tired and give up. That is why you have divorces. After 25 years, 30 years, you hear it all the time. It's like, you know, for me, I told one person, I would just hold my breath and deal with it after 30 years, you know, for the the sake of everybody, for the sake of the lawyer fees, for the... (laughs) For the sake of the children and can't the graduations and the grandbabies, just come on. But when you get older and you're not being taught to endure to the end to finish well, uh, then you're, you have a liability. To the older women among us, three through five, Likewise, in the same manner, the same kinds of truths apply, but teach these women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers, addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women. We'll go verse by verse through there. So older women now. Now by older women, he he means those who are 39. (laughs) Because that's, really, as far as the counter goes for for ladies. Now, three descriptions here in your text and then a teaching assignment. One virtue, two vices, and a teaching assignment. Let's go to the first virtue here, dignified. That's what reverent in the way they should live, verse 3. It really includes the suggestion of dress and how they carry themselves. Uh, Really, I have a definition here that reminds me of somebody I know, somebody I've lived with for 32 years. 32? (laughs) And this is why the, the older women have to train the younger women because of husbands who can't remember 
All right, so classy, dignified, her language always appropriate for the situation, the conduct matching the language appropriate. Like Barb. All right, so uh, moving on. Uh, oh, let me say this. Uh, yeah, vice, now the vice, vice number one. Brace yourselves for the Greek. They should not be devils. Diablos, it means slanderers. The devil's name means to lie about people, to spread gossip about people, to tear people apart. And you're no, you're no closer to being like the devil than when we talk about people in a negative way, unfair criticism, spread rumors, talk about things and people and situations we have no business doing. That's the word for that is devil. So just teach the older women who might have a little time on their hands. Listen, one writer said, women on the average speak 20,000 words a day. Men on the average speak 5,000 on a good day. (laughs) I know there's exceptions. Where there are many words, the Bible says there is no absence of sin. So therefore, dear Christian women, be mindful of the content of your 20,000 opportunities. (laughs) Your 20,000 opportunities to be gracious rather than diabolical. All right, I think we get that. And both genders need not act like devils for sure. The second vice to eschew, which is a fancy word for avoid, is not to be addicted to too much wine. Now, this is really interesting because we live in Napa Valley, <laughs> right? And we can go wine tasting and all of that, which is fine. However, how much is too much? If you have to ask ask that question, perhaps you need to rethink about actually involving yourself with wine. Now, uh, the Bible says wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise, Proverbs 20 and verse 1. So he's saying teach the older women in, in regard to this to be wise and not to be led astray in an area that's perfectly permissible, but not always beneficial. Older women use wisdom. Now, uh, now he's, he's going to give them a teaching assignment, these older women, and he's going to say, and, and here's what he's saying, it's not so much how you're teaching this way, it's how you're living which is teaching people. So he's saying, now I want the older women to be teaching the younger women what is good, the verse says, instead of teaching by example of spreading gossip and speaking about things you ought not to speak or drinking too much wine, let your life teach what is good. And now he's going to talk about what is good here in verse 3 still. Now, it's not Titus's um, duty to mentor young women. It isn't. The young women can be in the house church 
and listen to the sermons? Of course, they're there. They're being discipled in that sense. But uh, he is not to mentor young women. That is the job, biblically, of the older Christian godly woman. She comes alongside and she teaches by example. And yes, through opening the Bible, having a cup of tea, having a cup of coffee, having lunch together, walking together. This church, (laughs) ladies... Mentor one another, love one another. There's a Bible study for every day of the week in this church for ladies. Ladies have got it going on in this church. And there's no shortage of godly women available to walk the younger women. Now, when it says younger women, the word is fresh or new, and it means tied to marriage. And so help these younger wives who are just starting, they're engaged with, uh, they're engaged, or they're just newly married and they're young moms, older moms, older women, grandma, come alongside and, and train them, number one. Train them, so interesting, train them to love their husbands. What? You need training for that? (laughs) Yeah, you do. You know that song, All You Need Is Love? That is a lie. (laughs) We all know what you mean by that, but you know what? (laughs) After the honeymoon, after the hormones subside, and after you know you leave the toothpaste, uh, you know, cap off a few hundred times, and after you know you actually... Don't always do what you're expected to do in the relationship, then it's hard. It's just hard. I asked a couple I met once, they were celebrating their 65th wedding anniversary, the cutest things. And I said to the husband, I'm standing right by him, and I said, Hey, man, what's the secret to a happy, long marriage? 65 years. And he said, It comes down to two little words, son. Yes, dear. <laughs> And I said, and then the wife pulls my elbow, pulls my elbow and says, don't let him kid you. A good marriage is a lot of hard work. Sometimes blood, sweat, and tears. Oh, come on. Recipe could, the recipe for disaster is the two shall become one. Two different backgrounds, two different genders, two different worldviews, two different sets of baggage. And you'll lock them together in a room and say, become one? Dear Lord Jesus, have mercy. <laughs> so yeah, teach them, train them, because a good marriage means you've got to die to yourself, deny yourself. Yeah, uh, Ruth Gr- Bell Graham, Ruth Graham Bell, <laughs> Billy Graham's wife, <laughs> said, uh, a good marriage is the union of two good forgivers. And you, uh, to overlook offenses, that takes a lot of work. To stop saying something when you know the argument is building, the proverb says, drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. That takes more grace than we know. And so he says, train them. They're going to need training. Train them how to love their hubbies because, you know, sometimes when a husband is sick, he has to be cared for like a toddler. All right? So, whoa. 
All I saw were elbows flying. <laughs> and how to love your children. Oh, come on. Some of these things, to love your husband, love your children, are innate. They're there, they're, they're in there, but a lot are not. And that's why he has to say, train them, because to love your child isn't to tell them yes all the time, or to be their best friend, or, or to live like, uh, you know, I never want to upset them or make them uncomfortable, and I, I want them to love me all the time. One writer said the object of mom and dad job is not to become their children's best friend, not to always make them happy, not to tell Junior yes, Yes, of course you can, but to raise them in the training, the discipline, the instruction of the Lord. Now, verse 5 says, teach the younger women to be self-controlled and pure. The word is virtuous and chaste, not flirtatious, not worldly, not following the, the things that uh, kind of makes the world all uh, excited, right? The word for worldly in that sense in the Greek is an interesting one. It's Kardashian. <laughs> Do I need to say this? Do I, do I really need to say that some young women out there know more about the story of the Kardashians than they do the story of the gospel? Teach them to be virtuous and chaste. Busy at home, come on. It doesn't mean they have to stay at home. My word, Proverbs 31, that woman was out in fi selling fields and doing real estate. She was selling sashes to the merchant ships that went through the port. That's not busy at home. That's busy at home and also having an industrious life. And Deborah would have been busy at home if she weren't on the battlefield winning the day for the Lord, fighting the bad guys, right? And so this whole misinformation of being busy at home, come on. Here's what he's saying. The Holy Spirit is saying, inside a woman's heart, she is the one who makes a house a home. She's the one who sets the thermostat, who makes it hospitable, that place is either going to be freezing or it's going to be warm. And I'll tell you who's got the controls for that. <laughs> and we have idioms that back this proof up. Happy life, happy. Yeah, it doesn't go happy life, happy husband. It just doesn't work that way. Or happy husband, happy whatever. I mix my metaphors there. You know, bottom line, if mama's not happy, what? <laughs> Oh, we know something. Busy at home. Grandma, mom, teach the, the daughters. Make that place. Make sure everybody's getting what they need. Your husband comes home. He's happy. He's relieved. He can sit down on the couch and he finds a refuge. He's been fighting battles out there. He comes in and it's like, oh, 
Be busy at home. Be busy at home. A kind, not rocket science, he says, ladies, teach the younger women to be kind because, and this is in relationship to the home with the husbands and the kids. That's the hardest place in the pressure cooker with a sometimes demanding man and super demanding children and you're tired and you're stressed and that's where he says, teach them, ladies, how to be kind. I have one, uh, one little statement here. How many marriages would be saved and how many children averted from destructive paths by just adding a little kindness to the house? And if you were sitting here or listening, thinking about somebody else, if only they heard that, you may be more part of the problem than you cared to realize because the word was you. You need to be more kind. You need to add a please or a thank you or to come up with some compliments. You're dying to hear. Why doesn't he say this? Well, do you say it? Why did he thank me for a really good meal? Did you thank him for slaying the dragon all week? <laughs> He's saying, be kind. Be kind. Well, how do you be kind in all of that? I'll tell you what. <laughs> Works every time. Think about the kindness God has shown you by bleeding out for your wretched sins. If you think about the kindness that was undeserved by you to let you off of past, present, and future of every single misdeed, thought, and sin. If you think about that and dwell on that and wake up with that in your head, you'll be kind. You will be kind. The problem is when the kids are crying and the husband's complaining, right? It's hard to remember anything spiritual. But if you can... You'll be kind. And it works both ways, doesn't it? Okay, it goes on to be uh, our favorite line, to be subject to their husbands. <laughs> oh, yeah, we get to talk about submission. <laughs> well, Ephesians 5 does say we submit both to uh, each other. Now, listen, it, it has nothing ever to do with value or worth we are equally loved and valued in God's sight but for functionality God has a plan and he says it's like a a beautiful ballroom dance the two shall become one and my friends only one can lead a dance if they are both trying to lead you do not have a beautiful dance you have a beautiful mess all right so one person for functionality God said the man, and subject yourselves, ladies, to the husband, not because he's worth it, not because he did anything to deserve it, but as unto the Lord, and of course, factoring in the exception of abuse and sinful things. All things being equal, come under, come under. He's not a believer. First uh, Peter chapter 3 says, it's okay that he's not a believer, still come under him and win him to the Lord without words, but by your reverent, dignified, godly behavior. That's what he says here. So be subject 
uh, to your husbands. And husbands, help them by being the kind of guy that any woman in her right mind would love to trust and uh, to be responsible to care and to cherish her. Live that kind of life that makes it easy to do something that's quite hard. Amen? All right. And, and, and then he says, so that, and here it is, the outside world's looking in, so that you want a marriage that works, that isn't a mess because you've named Christ and people are watching, so that nobody maligns the word of God and goes, oh, yeah, Christian marriage. You know, they're always talking about Jesus. Look at their lives. Look at their marriage. Ooh, unbelievers have better marriages than some Christians. And that's what he's saying. Please don't do that, one writer said. It's the BST commentary series by Stott. And he said, Christian marriages and Christian homes that exhibit the beauty and the beautiful way husbands and wives complement with an E, complement and complete one another in love. It's a strong commendation of the gospel. And a marriage where Christ is named where that doesn't happen, where it's a bad marriage and a chaos happening, brings dis disrepute to the gospel and the Lord himself. And so let's move on here to uh, the young bucks, the blackbeards, okay? Verses six through eight. In the same sort of way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. And then he's going to say, in everything, you, who are a young, who, <laughs> who is a young man, uh, verses 7 and 8, uh, we'll take a look at that. In everything, set them an example, Titus, by doing what's good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you have nothing to say about you. You know, let your good behavior defend any criticism. All right, so the young bucks here in verse six, he says, in a similar way, encourage them to be self-controlled. Now, self-control is prescribed for the older men, the uh, older women, the younger men, the younger women, the pastors, the elders, the deacons, and for every single Christian. And why is that? Well, we have a clue in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. A person without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls, protection walls. So in other words, if you don't have self-control, you are doomed. You're doomed because you will ruin your life. It's just a matter of time. If you're lacking self-control, just a matter of time before your life implodes. You are vulnerable to your hormones, to road rage, uh, to, to, to temptation, to all kinds of things happen when a person doesn't have self-control. It's the foundation. It's the wall. It's the thing that saves you from yourself. So if you don't have that, man, he's saying, listen, tell the young guys, they need to slay the dragon with self-control. Temper issues with young men. Anger, reactions, the tongue and words, ambition for young men. Young men with greed and avarice, passions and appetites and desire to abstain before your marriage, young man. 
That's biblical. You call yourself a Christian. You have to have self-control. You have to be virtuous. You have to be disciplined. You cannot have relationships outside of your marriage, sexually speaking. You must have self-control. It hardly ever happens. It just hardly ever happens. And because it hardly ever happens, we think because most of the Christian world is compromised in this regard that it's kind of okay because we live in a day where that's kind of the way it is. But he says, you young man, self-control and obey the commands of God that you wait until you're married and after you're married, You are faithful. Physically and mentally. Self-control. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So now he says, okay, and young man, here's the way. He's saying, well, first of all, there's a valuable lesson with this, verse 6. Number one, it's possible. Because he would never tell anybody, God would never tell you to do something that you couldn't do. So he's giving you the Holy Spirit. The one who commands you to do anything is the enabler. So if you can't be self-controlled, trust me, if the problem is not with God, the problem is a user error there. So number two, self-control is contagious. So it's passed along by encouragement. So he says, you, Titus, you're 35 years old. You're 30, whatever he was. Be sympathetic, be supportive to fellow strugglers and encourage the young men. Come alongside them. Not just words, bro, but show them by example, verses 7 and 8. Titus, make sure you practice what you preach. Don't just tell them. Verses 7 and 8 that you're looking at, he's saying what Paul used to say to the Philippians when Paul said, Whatever things you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the the God of peace will be with you. Paul says, it's not just so my words, not just so much my words. He says, watch how I live. Watch when my world turns upside down. Watch me when people say unkind things about me. Watch me when there's money in the bank, when when there's no money in the bank. Watch me when the doctor says, hey, man, I don't like what we're seeing here. Just watch me on Sunday morning, on vacation, on the freeway. Just watch me, he says. So Titus, be an example. Did you notice in everything? Be an example in everything, and that's what I'm saying. On the job or on the couch at home, in the pulpit, or driving down the freeway at church or on vacation. That's what we've got going on. Deep truths are often caught more than they are taught. And that's what the verses are saying here. So he says, in your teaching, when you preach and teach and you stand up before people with with the Bible in front of you, you need to use integrity, seriousness, and soundness. In other words, don't go in there un- underprepared. 
Work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who doesn't need to be ashamed, who correctly explains the word of truth. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. Here's what he means by integrity, seriousness of speech, and soundness. He's saying, don't exaggerate. Don't plagiarize. Dear God, help the pastor who plagiarizes. I ran into a terrible example of that. They should have removed him from the pulpit. Word for word, he would download sermons. Word for word. That's not integrity. That's not what we're called to do. Don't use sketchy language, border language problems, you know? Like that. We were at Hume Lake and some guy said something just blew our guys away. Everybody else, I guess, was okay with it. I went to the, the, the lead guy and said, he was behind a pulpit and said that. Well, it's a men's retreat. He was standing there with the Bible behind a pulpit and said that kind of language. And I'm not talking about a borderline thing. I'm talking about what you'd all agree and go, like that, but I'm sparing your mind, so I already gave you too much. (laughs) Seriousness, soundness, no rude joking or uh, double entendres, whatever that means. (laughs) You know what it means. So he says that you can't be criticized. He says, listen. So your detractors will say, listen to his sermon. Listen to him, sir. And they're sitting there waiting for you to say something stupid or wrong or exaggerated or talking about stuff you don't even understand. He says, don't do that. But let them sit there with their clipboard and they're ready and they're ready. And then you say, in Jesus' name, amen. And guess what? There's nothing on the clipboard because you pulled the rug out from underneath Those who want to say negative things about you. That's how you ought to live. That's how you have to preach and teach. Let your good behavior answer your critics. There's nothing better for a defense than a life lived well. All around your good reputation, I'll shut those lies down. But you have to have one. (laughs) You have to have a good reputation. You can't have something they'll say, well, he said such and such, and you say, well, that kind of sounds like him. No, you want somebody to say, what? No way. No way in a thousand years that could ever happen. That's how you're going to live. Let's finish up here with uh, 9 and 10, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back, give them a bunch of lip, not to steal from them. How embarrassing. He's talking to Christians. Hey, cut it out. But to show them they can be fully trusted and so that in every way, Christianity becomes attractive. That's the whole point. So we close out here with... um, the idea of slavery, we're going to contemporize it, all right? And we're going to make it applicable to having an employer and a boss and serving as an employee. But I will tell you about the original context. 
So first of all, let's clarify, because there's a lot of fake news out there. The Bible condones slavery. What? Paul said to slaves who came to faith while they were indentured servants, hey, if you can get your uh, freedom, that's, that's a good thing. You need to do that. But the point of Christianity wasn't to come down and change social constructs. It was to come down to save us from within, to save us from our sin, to come down to free us from within. Then we could be salt and light. And then the social constructs, if you will, will be impacted and changed. And that's exactly what Christianity did and is doing all over the world for women, for children, and for those under the terrible, deplorable situation of slavery. And so, you know, listen, the Bible uh, speaks of divorced people. The Bible acknowledges godless government, abusive regimes, oppressive uh, things to the poor, corrupted leaders in the church, and doesn't condone any of it but says this is how the gospel should affect those flawed institutions in a fallen world. And that's exactly what he's doing here. Hey, if you find yourself in the flawed, fallen, deplorable situation of being a slave, and 40% of the church was, because 40% of the Roman Empire was. Now, indentured servants, and then we'll dive into the employee application, But doctors and lawyers and skilled tradespeople, they would offer themselves to people of resource because it's a pretty good deal. You know, you did, you got to practice, but you had a beautiful place to live and they took care of everything and you were their servant. Uh, And you could stop being their servant when you felt like it. A lot of people, scholars believe that Luke was a slave. Now, if you went into debt and you wanted to hire yourself out as a household servant to pay your debt off, once your debt was paid, you were freed up. But so these are the kinds of situations. They weren't ideal. Some situations were better than others. Uh, But so here's what he's saying. Okay, if you happen to be like close to half the population (laughs) and you find yourself with a master to to serve, submit yourself to the boss in everything. Now, let's take a look at this from the perspective of uh, contemporizing it, that we have bosses. <laughs> Work sometimes is very much like slavery, you know? <laughs> it depends. I need an amen there. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> so he says, Submit yourself, employee Christian that you are, to the boss in everything. Try to please them, not to talk back to them. And we're going to take a look at this. To submit themselves to the boss in everything means to come under, to fall. The word means to fall into rank. Willingly, with a smile, because why? You don't work for the guy or the gal. Colossians chapter 3 says that you're not working, and he's talking to employees, you are not working for your boss, your supervisor. You are actually, and God is watching and considering that you are working for him and you represent him. So you do your work and submit as unto him, not because you like him, 
not because he's nice, not because he deserves it, but because you have a moral obligation and a command from God to be a good, hardworking, honest, loyal, faithful, dedicated employee because you represent God. How would you like it if somebody represented you, went out, and they were your, you know, ambassador, your, your representative? And the way they were dressed, or the way they were acting, the way they were speaking, they said, hey, you know, John sent me, Brian sent me, you know, Jamie sent me. And they acted like a complete fool, unproductive and lazy and late, and always rolling their eyes and cutting corners. How would you like it? That's how God feels. He says, you're an employee in my name. And it doesn't matter about him, her, or them. It matters about him and you. Submit willingly, not grudgingly, not dragging your heels, not rolling your eyes, not murmuring and complaining. And he says, not talking back. When they ask you to do something, you represent Christ. Are you going to really push back? You always ask me to do that. I hate taking the trash out. You know, I, I hate doing that job. Why can't you find somebody else to do it? It's not my responsibility to do that. He says, could you please stop doing that? Wow. Now, it's one thing if the boss wants to hear from you and asks you what you think. With respect, he values your opinions, and then you can speak. But he's talking about always pushing back. So, really... Uh, if, you, if, if, if you get to do what you love in your job, awesome. If they're a great boss and it's a great place to work, awesome. If it's not, nothing has changed in regard to God's expectation of you as a Christian in the workplace. And if you want to farewell and if you want to hear, God welcome you with well done, good and faithful service, servant. You better be a good employee. You're not, I promise you, if you're not a good employee and you spend your years just cutting corners and being unproductive and just working there for the paycheck, I promise you, you will not hear those words. You will hear welcome. You will hear, I'm glad you're here. But you will, you will forfeit reward because it's such a big thing. There is nothing worse than a poor employee, a poor worker who professes the name of Jesus, there is no greater damage to the name of Jesus or the gospel than someone who's, instead of making the cappuccinos, he's talking too much about the Bible. He takes long, long breaks because I was having devotions. What's more important than devotions? I'll tell you what's more important than devotions. And what's more spiritual is that you're on time, you do what you're asked to do, and you do it the second mile. You go all the way, and you win that person's heart. I'll tell you what. I know an engineer who works in this county. He's a Christian. He was mopping the floor because the janitor didn't do a good job. He was in the break room, and it just looked like a mess, and they were having people from China come to talk to the engineers, and he fixed it all up. And the boss takes note of that. You're an engineer. 
What are you doing mopping the floor? And he says, it needed it. It needed it. Why not do it? Trust me. When that guy says there's an Easter Sunday service, would you like to come? Because in all of the ways he's productive, he's on time, he's loyal, he doesn't spread stupid rumors throughout the company. He's an asset. That boss will go to Easter service. But it's quite true, the converse. A guy who's always reading the Bible and never doing his work, always leaving early and always complaining. And then he says, hey, you want to come to Christmas service? No, I don't. I can't wait for you to be fired, actually. (laughs) Let me close with, with this. Oh, and the good Lord save you, Christian employer, from hiring a Christian. Because the Bible says, has to call out Christians who work for Christians and say, are you really seriously going to give them less than your best because they're a brother? Bible has to say it. Because there's something about, oh, you know, this is temporary and we're going to heaven and he has to forgive me. (laughs) You know, all of that. (laughs) you're fired (laughs) all right and I got something to say here I'll close with this and I've used it before but I was at Pete's where I like to hang out you can find me there a lot and everybody kind of knows me I know the manager My son used to work there. So there's a good relationship there. And so I noticed that one of our people from The Rock, I'm just going to give you the initials, Daniel Bernard. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. He was working there. We were talking. And I said, oh, this is so cool. This is so cool. And I said, man, dude, you're not the only Christian. And then the, uh, the, the manager walked by me, and I said, you like to hire Christians. And she says, yes, I do. I said, why is that? And she says, because they actually do what I asked them to do. (laughs) And they actually do what I asked them to do. Praise the Lord. We can do that. I'm going along again. With a smile. And sometimes he's thinking ahead and I don't even have to ask. Now invite her to Sunday service. Of course she'd want to come. There's no reason not to come, right? But if you're, you know, making conversation instead of cappuccinos, (laughs) right? And you're saying, I hate the morning shift. I have to get up at four in the morning. (laughs) Not good. Amen. And the whole point is, do it, do all of this, because you represent Christ to the world that's lost and dying. And it's your best way to make a difference in their lives by showing them, not simply telling them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this chapter just so filled with beautiful things. We pray that you bless us now as we try to apply them in our hearts and lives. In Christ's name, amen. 
You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.